They never asked for money. So they're like, oh, I talked to Chase Jarvis and he said he was really interested in my thing. Did you ask Chase for money? Did, yeah. Like, hey, if I build this, right. will you pay will me? Will you pay me? Yeah. And how much specifically? Will you pay me $10, $100, $1,000, $10,000? So they first don't want to ask for money because most people don't want to pay for anything. Mm-hmm. And then second of all, they don't ask for the specific amount of money, therefore backing into the value they might deliver. Today's conversation is long overdue. In short, I long ago realized that so many creators and entrepreneurs have little knowledge about how, if, and and when to use other people's money, that would be investment and or loans or whatever, to grow their businesses. That's one of the reasons I decided to have one of my close friends and business mentors on the show today. He has done so many things for me, so much support over the years, including like whiteboarding the ideas for starting Creative Live way before it was a company. He also helped me get my best camera app, that that photo app that I made, which was app of the year in the Apple store. He helped me get that off the ground and he's helped me become a better entrepreneur and an investor over the past decade. His name is T.A. McCann, T. A. McCann. That's right. T.A. is a serial entrepreneur. He has sold companies to Google and BlackBerry, among others. And prior to those exits, he was an entrepreneur at residence for Microsoft billionaire Paul Allen. Before all that, he held senior roles at Microsoft, where he led their email and mobile services divisions. Yeah, he has got the resume, right? Today, he is a managing director at Pioneer Square Labs, which is an amazing startup studio based here in Seattle and a venture capital fund. It's focused on building amazing businesses that drive impact. In addition to all this stuff, he's an adjunct professor at the University of Washington Foster School of Business here in Seattle. He's an active Techstars mentor, and he's even, yes, got this, this amazing little asterisk on his resume, which is one-time professional sailor, where he, yes, won, as in was victorious in the America's Cup for the United States of America. Today's episode covers a broad range of creative and entrepreneurial topics, but the heart of the episode aims to answer almost any question that you could have about that big black box, the mystery of whether you should bootstrap your business or think about taking loans or investment from outside sources. So excited for today's episode. Please enjoy this combo between yours truly and my pal, friend, and mentor, T.A. McCann. Welcome to the show, friend. It's been a long time coming. Cheers. Shall we cheers? Cheers. Okay. We're in person today, and as most people listening uh, may or may not know, the show used to be 100% in person, and then obviously... uh, the pandemic happened and, you know, technology got good and we've been doing remote for years and every once in a while, special people, we get to be face to face. My last person uh, who did that was, was Rain Wilson. That was a couple weeks ago. And now I get to be here uh, with my dear friend, T.A. McCann. T.A., welcome to the show. So fun to be here. One of my favorite places in Seattle. There we go. This studio where we are recording today, a little backstory. Um, I have shared with you before that a lot of times... Um, when I think about how to change the show, grow the show, um, evolve it, one of the things that I always gravitate towards is having my dear close friends on the show. Uh, I feel like a lot of these folks have, like yourself, have achieved great things, um, but you're not actually promoting anything right now. 
my goal with this conversation is to have a deep, wide-ranging, broad conversation about creativity and about entrepreneurship. Um, there are very few people in my life that I call mentors, uh, and that's not um, a conscious choice, but I definitely refer to you always uh, as my friend and mentor. And uh, I think my hope is that the listeners today will find extra value in their knowing that I'm bringing a mentor. Other people that I prefer to as mentors is Sir Richard Branson, for example, because he really taught me a lot about how to build a business and delegate. But when I think about like my nuts and bolts entrepreneurial background, I learned most of what I know from you. And we were joking before this recording started that you were a little itchy, a little nervous because there's not a whiteboard within arm's length. And you have some really long arms to be, to be <laughs> clear. TA, what are you, six, five, six, four, six, four, six. Yeah. You're just saying that. Um, but there's no whiteboards. You have a mini whiteboard in front of you there. You have I, no I always carry it. It's a nervous thing. <laughs> um, but I like to start off the show with my guests being able to explain in their own words, apart from the intro that I already shared, what is it? How do you identify? I've given the backstory of like entrepreneur, but talk to us a little bit about in your own words, how do you think about what you like to do in life and uh, how you sort of what, what your identity is when you you know roll into a business meeting or you roll into a, a cocktail party or something? How do you think about identifying yourself for, for the casual listener? Yeah, well, it's great to be here and uh, a little bit embarrassed to be followed by a rich or put in the same category as Richard Branson. <laughs> you are. Uh, but I appreciate that. And it's been great to be friends for so long and work on so many different ideas together and so many hours on the whiteboard. <laughs> uh, so I tend to describe myself as an entrepreneur, husband, father, and adventurer and teacher. Got it. And uh, if I was to plug the adventure part, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about you, which I did say in the intro, so I'm saying it again, is your you you have competed uh, in the America's Cup sailing race. You both won and lost. Indeed. Um, and that uh, is that's uh, gosh, the number of people that get to compete at that level is very 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 small. That's basically the Olympics of sailing, is it not? Well, there is the Olympics and sailing, and that is one of the Olympics of sailing. So, Got yes, it. it's one of the one of the higher uh, caliber uh, sailing events. They the there is a pattern, not always a pattern, but there is a pattern that I have noticed on having hundreds and hundreds of guests on the show. There is a, a sort of a, a competitive spirit, a background for a lot of entrepreneurs and creators. Not always. Um, because for every entrepreneur that is, you know, came from sports, there's someone who, you know, was, you know, locked themselves in a closet and read thousands of books as a young kid or a skateboarder where everything was very individual. But I, there is some sort of sort of competitive backstory for uh, a lot of entrepreneurs that has its roots in sports. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Is that something that you identify with? Is that some a, a commonality that you see as someone who mentors other entrepreneurs now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up as a competitive swimmer, so I went to college on a swimming scholarship, uh, Purdue Big Ten swimming, uh, went to Olympic trials in 1998, 1988 for uh, swimming. And so I had, you know, when you were eight, well, 1988. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I had, you know, had that competitive nature from, you know, very early age. Uh, and then the sailing thing happened too, where that was something I dreamed about as a kid. Wow. So I'd seen a video that like many people had seen of climbing Mount Everest or doing the Tour de France or whatever you think. And I had seen a, a video of around the world race. 
And so as a kid, I saw that and I said, I'd, I'd really like to do that. And after I graduated college, I got my job and I started thinking about, well, if I'm going to do this around the world race thing, I better start figuring it out. So I wrote a letter to some people I'd met along the way saying, hey, I'm interested in doing this thing. Here's my qualifications. Could you give me some advice? Uh, introduce me to some people because I'm on this path. And they had sort of remembered me from uh, from meeting three, four, five years. And early. is this like sailing clubs or what is it? Like- yeah, my mom actually, who hopefully we'll get to talk about it in a little bit. My mom had volunteered in this America's Cup team in 1987. And so she had an event at our yacht club. I came home. I met these guys, Gary Jobson, Buddy Melgis. And uh, they actually recruited me for their 87 America's Cup. Uh, I chose to stay in college and not do that. But it sort of reconnected with them and said, hey, I'm looking to do this around the world race. Graduated from college. I'm pretty fit. I know my way modestly well around the sailboat. And could you help me get on this path? And they said, well, we're more than happy to do that. We totally remember your mom. I don't know if they remember me or not, but they definitely <laughs> remember my mom. And, uh, and so they gave me an opportunity to try out for this America's Cup team. And I went and tried out. And they said, not good enough. I tried out a second time, not good enough. And then somebody who was probably better than me decided to join a different team. So I got kind of pulled up off of the minor leagues joined that team, and then we went on, went on to win the America's Cup. That's a little bit like joining a startup that ultimately IPOs. Uh-huh. And so I had a small role in that, but I learned a lot. And then that led to doing the around the world race in between, and then the America's Cup after that again. So there was a lot of competitive swimming that led to competitive sailing that then has now led to competitive entrepreneurship, I suppose. So a couple other questions on the sports front. So I remember a story about uh, a, a very harrowing set of events that happened off the coast of, I think it was New Zealand or Australia, um, that I remember, I think shit was hard for me once as an entrepreneur, and you were saying, <laughs> hey, I remember shit got hard for me once yep. in this race. And there's all, again, these parallels between competition and sports and entrepreneurship. And I remember you sharing that story with me. I'm wondering if you could share it again. What was that? Uh, yeah, you're, what's you're, the you're close. Okay. So this was uh, the Sydney to Hobart race. So it's Australia, not New Zealand. Yep. But Sydney to Hobart race um, happens every Boxing Day or the December 26th every year. And um, I was on sailing with Larry Ellison, the co-founder of uh, or the founder of Oracle, who I sailed with for a while. Uh, we got caught in the middle of a really terrible storm. And there were boats flipping over and people drowning and lots and lots of carnage in that particular point in time. And I was fortunate to be on the biggest boat <laughs> with the most professional people, uh, with the, probably the best prepared. And it was still very difficult. So I've, you know, spent thousands of days on the water and those couple of days off the coast of Australia were, uh, some of the most difficult for sure. And the boat was delaminating. Many of our team was injured. Uh, again, there were people that we, that we knew and I knew that were lost at sea during that point in time. Uh, some of them didn't come back. And so when you sort of draw it back to the entrepreneurship component, you're like, yeah, this is hard, but nobody's dying and we're likely to get through it. And so when you've, I think you've put yourself in those kind of situations, it does give you a perspective. Yeah. On, where people do die and, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and hard is like hard. You're fighting for your life hard versus you're fighting for your pride or your investors dollars or the community that you're trying to serve or they're, exactly. they're different. Exactly. There is some sort of a, 
a parallel again i when i think of i mentioned earlier sir richard you know him doing a lot of his around the world escapades and air balloons and and where he almost you know fell into the atlantic and was rescued and and i with my avalanche story almost dying yeah. is that is that uh helpful in entrepreneurship is it helpful in life to have these harrowing experiences that you know put perspective around what it is that we're doing like i'm just i, I think back there's there is a pattern not in every case as i mentioned there are people who are you know really really intellectual and they live through books and there are people who you know were were very individual and creative and artistic and yet there is some thread of people who've gone through some shit uh is that required do you see this commonality in entrepreneurs and yeah i don't know i don't know if it's required and i don't know if it's just the hard part i think it's the trying to achieve something that's that by its nature happens to be difficult yeah. right it's difficult to achieve and in certain cases it causes or has the attribute of uh could be death defying could yeah. be you know could be mortal uh but oftentimes difficult things have that yeah especially yeah. through the lens of adventure or sport. Yeah. Um, you know, swimming isn't necessarily dangerous. It's hard, right? <laughs> right uh, yeah. Mountain climbing is hard and dangerous, right? Yeah. Offshore sailing can be hard and dangerous. And, but it doesn't have to be dangerous. But I think the, at least for me and other people I found is you're attempting something difficult and you've sometimes succeeded, sometimes failed. Um, in that attempting something difficult, and that gives you perspective on attempting other things that are difficult. Yeah. Um, and in, in some ways, it doesn't matter whether you succeeded or failed, because if you failed, as it were, and you kind of lived through it, you're like, okay, like I can make it through other difficult things. And if you succeeded, it gives you this confidence to try something maybe even more difficult yeah. or more ambitious, probably. So I would separate ambition. Um, and excellence from necessarily difficulty, though they oftentimes are intertwined. Helpful. So I'm going to put a pin in a couple of the things that we've covered so far and try and lay out a, basically a landscape, uh, a map where I want us to sort of journey around the next hour of our conversation. Because it's, maps. Maybe it's, a chart. <laughs> it's wide ranging. <laughs> um, one of the things you'll know about TA uh, through the course of this discussion. And we are also, again, jesting as we do before we start recording these shows. Um, can you tell the story about uh, that gentleman coming to meet you? <laughs> and what, what Andrea, you're uh, the person who runs the front desk at Pioneer Square Labs, where you currently are yes, working. Yes. Well, for people who, who work with me, they know I'm somewhat intense uh, and very direct. And so a person was coming to pitches for venture capital investment met our uh, assistant, got us situated, and they were asking, they had never met me before, sort of like, so what's TA like? Uh, and they were asking, like, is he relaxed or chill or whatever? And uh, our assistant, Andrea, said, he, no chill. <laughs> no chill. <laughs> no chill. <laughs> no chill, which I think is meant to say that I'm just very direct, uh, efficient yeah. uh, with my time, hopefully with other person's time. Uh, I'm not particularly sort of casual in that way and trying to get to some result yeah. uh, for that person or myself. So it's a little bit of a joke amongst us all. It's like, you know, so chill, so chill or no chill. No chill. And yet, and maybe in my personal life, I can be much, yeah. more, oh, much I, more chill. Well, the irony is that I get to see a lot of the chill side of you because mostly when we go out, we're not uh, solving problems anymore. Although 
uh, that is, uh, you've helped me solve a lot of problems. Uh, I do want to walk through those. Uh, as I mentioned, laying out a little map, there's the map of, um, of helping people understand the different ways to grow their business. And because you know the audience, you've been around since the show was invented, right? In 2009, we started recording this show and you were, uh, you know, man, many businesses. It's been, it's been a long time. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting since 2009. <laughs> finally, I, finally, I get on here. Finally. Well, you didn't know. You were in a secret tryout the whole time and you finally got enough points in the game to... Um, no, but I do believe that most of the people listening, whether they're solopreneurs, small business people, uh, or entrepreneurs who want to build a uh, you know, world-changing, game-changing, category-defining business, the understanding of the awareness of all of the different vehicles through which you can grow your business, some just by hard work and, and uh, bootstrapping is the phrase that we tend to go with, all the way up to raising a bunch of money and helping you know, through venture capital or other means. And so I really think it's going to be valuable for our listeners if we talk a little bit about that. That is, I'm going to say sort of, this is one territory that I want us to go in. The other territory is, um, I would be interested to hear through your lens of our relationship, the different businesses that that I've built here from the best camera app through Creative Live, for example, and what you witnessed me, how you witnessed me struggling and not knowing. And I, I would like to basically sort of come clean there. I talk on this show and other places in the world. Like I, I'm widely experienced in all these things. Often I'm just learning them a week or a month or a year before sharing with the show. So I think, and by using me as an example, we can say there's a, a, a way that um, I can be the guinea pig. This is where entrepreneurs in general, <clears throat> Jace, stumbles. And as someone who sees a lot of entrepreneurs, my hope is that you see patterns where people screw up and make mistakes. The third sort of territory is, uh, and it's related to the first one, all the different ways of create, of getting funding, what you're specifically doing now and what is interested where your future lies and what's, what's interesting to you. And then the last one is this like, what should people care about in the lens of technology, how our, our world is changing? Because as someone who gets pitched, how many times a year do you get pitched? Oh, a thousand. thousand. So you see a thousand business pitches a year. That helps inform where the world's going because you see where a lot of the technology innovation investment's going. So those are sort of rough, and I'm not sure if we're going like, to cover them in that order. But You're the skipper. You're okay. the captain today. I, I will. I will take us uh, ahoy, matey. Ahoy. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll cover some ground. So, let's go to the beginning. Where entrepreneurs, creators, there are a lot of individual, like I would say, YouTubers who have been receiving investment now, and to me, that's really strange. That's like, wait a minute, you're a like a solopreneur. You're a a talent on a YouTube show, why would you want to get investors? As a person who has raised money in a couple different, you know, arenas of life, the that money doesn't come for free, right? There's there are strings attached to that money. And sometimes those strings are strings that pull you. And sometimes I guess you can't really push on a string, but let's push the rope, I think. Yeah, push, push the, the rope. rope. Yeah, that's that's a different metaphor. Um <laughs> but talk to me about the range of of mechanisms through which creators who are listening to the show can grow their business. Mm -hmm. And you see it all again from the spectrum of I'm just, uh, uh, 
a woman trying to bootstrap my business to I have this idea. I think it can compete with Facebook or whatever. So I'm going to go raise $100 million and build the game-changing category-defining business. What are the ranges there? All right. So I'm a framework guy. So I'm also a mechanical engineer. So a lot of things and a lot of my answers tend to be sort of, I would say, engineering oriented and hopefully framework oriented, as you've known me, lots of whiteboard. Very structured thinker, very structured framework. And hopefully therefore it can apply to other people and other use cases. Yeah. So the framework I'm going to use for the answer to your question is founder, idea, investor, outcome, fit. So it's very common, especially when you I haven't actually done an acronym. For for idea, for for let's just do it the way <laughs> okay. I said it. Okay, it's fine. Founder, idea, investor, outcome, fit. Okay. So it's quite common, especially in venture capital kind of realms. There's this term of founder, idea, fit. Are you the best person to go lead X thing? Like when you did best camera, incredibly strong founder, idea, fit. Mm-hmm. Right. You knew the space. You knew the problem. You knew the audience incredibly well. So very strong founder, idea, fit. Mm-hmm. Um. Then you can say founder, idea, investor, fit. So which types of investors or how might you raise capital if you need capital for said business? Sometimes that capital comes from customers, mm-hmm. right? So that's- You go out, you bootstrap, you go out and get your first couple of customers. pay you money, yeah. amazing. And you can actually pay yourself well enough to build that business. Then you have founder, idea, investor, outcome, fit. So what is the outcome that the founder wants to have? You want to have a lifestyle business. You want to employ, employ two people, 10 people, a thousand people. That's the financial outcome, but also what kind of impact you want to have in the world. So a solopreneur can only have a, a finite amount of impact in the world versus a gigantic company, which theoretically can have a much larger impact in the world. So if you think of founder and outcome fit, mm-hmm. certain entrepreneurs are like, yeah, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. More like, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, I want to stay close to the creative process. I don't want to become the CEO of a gigantic company and trying to run that. And so there's, I think each one of those is sort of founder, idea, investor, outcome, fit. Certain kinds of investors have certain expectations of the outcome. How long will that take? How big will it be? And how will they make a return on their particular investment? So it's important for any person who is thinking about, okay, I'm a founder of a thing, Mm -hmm. solopreneur, all the way up to the founder of whatever perceives to be the next largest company. What is the kind of impact that I want to have in the world? If I create a large company, there theoretically I will have a larger impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but founder, idea, investor, outcome, fit. Now the different types of investment, of course, could be customers. You'll get those ultimately, and ultimately that's the best. You could have friends and family money. You could have professional money and professional money could be small professional money or it could be, let's call it big professional money, which might be venture capital, sort of the things that I do now. So there's angel investors and venture capital investors. And I've done businesses that are every flavor. Mm -hmm. So I've done the customer, you know, revenue, build it, bootstrap it and be profitable from day one effectively. And uh, just I want to I want to inject just so we're clear because we're moving fast for people who this is new. By customer revenue, you mean I start a business, I have zero customers, and then I, through marketing or word of mouth or whatever, I land my first customer and my second customer. So now I have three customers and say they're each paying me $5,000 a month. Now I have a $15,000 a month cash flow that I can then go build the rest of my business. I can sign up my, you know, I can build an email newsletter and I can build uh, a website and I can build. So 
the way that you're building their business is through generating cash from new customers and you're serving those customers and using the cash to build a business. Correct. That's at the bootstrapped end. Correct. Right. And then at the other end of the, of the, uh, spectrum, if you will, then that would be, I'm going out to an, a prospective investor and of these, there's friends and family, professional sort of like angels who are people yeah. who are high net worth individuals who might want to invest in your business. And then there's institutional money like venture capital firms or private equity or banks. Correct. Okay, so on that, banks sp- tend not to be investors; they're lo- they're lenders. Yeah. So intent in that particular sense, they're they're letting you borrow against them as opposed to investing. And I would separate those as different concepts. Great, but yes. great. And I'm just thinking I threw them all in institutional, but they're because a venture capital could be an institution; they are accredited professional investors. Correct. So, of those, shall we call them four categories? For now, um, okay, four categories. What are the advantages and disadvantages of each of these categories? Mm-hmm. All right. So on the customer side, I'm going to separate that too. Is one is you could have customers who pay you when the service is delivered. And if your service is super compelling, you might even have, have them pay in front of when the service is delivered. Sure. I did a company like that uh, where I basically went to enterprise customers and said, I'm going to build a thing. You have to pay me upfront $50,000 for said thing. And when I give you the thing, if you like it, I'll cash your check. Mm-hmm. If you don't like it, I'll give you your check back and I'll get somebody else's check. That's like a prepayment as it were. And sometimes sure. you're, you know, if you build something compelling, you get the prepayment to happen. But those are all customer funded. Sure. They tend to grow slower because you have to wait for the customer to pay in order for you to advance to grow other ways. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, that venture capital, that's where you're getting a significant amount of money up front before you've really built very much and you may be able to hire lots of people and those tend to grow a lot faster. They also tend to burn out <laughs> relatively quickly, yeah. as some people have probably experienced, uh, meaning they're certain a large pool of capital, and then that sort of dries up for one way or another, and you haven't created the right amount of momentum for the amount of investment that, you, that you've created. So speed and growth and, and potential size is more oriented toward the venture capital side of that equation. Right. And the bootstrapped customer is more oriented toward a slower growth uh, orientation, at least for a while. Got it. So where I want to like focus like a laser beam is most people who are listening to the show, I think would identify as solopreneurs or small business entrepreneurs. I want to have, they're a photographer or they're a designer and they own a design studio and they employ three people or hire contractors on a regular or somewhat regular basis and or may have you know a handful let's call it less than 20 employees and for those types of people what do you think about raising money borrowing money getting investment you know how would you what lens would you encourage them to look at that through well i guess it would depend on the person but most of them need to have a vision for how it's a much larger company mm-hmm Right. And if the vision is we're going to we're at seven people a day and we'll be 14 people and we'll do three photo shoots and we'll go to six photo shoots. I mean, that's not a a much larger business. You may need a little bit of money up front to buy more gear or do something like that. That's what banks are for. Sure. Right. That's what making a loan from your uncle is for. Got it. Right. That's the friends and family type of thing or just this working capital. But if all of a sudden that photographer says, like, I think that I can create a much larger impact in the world, a la what you did with Best Camera. Mm -hmm or Creative Live, you had a vision that was so much larger than a small business. 
and the vision of so many more people that could be impacted by that, not by seeing someone's photograph, I say, but by building a platform by which people could do something much larger. Yeah. I don't think most people either have that idea or want what's going to come along with it. Right? What are some of the things that come along with that? Well, you oftentimes get pulled away from the creative part. Yeah. You're like, great, you're the, now the CEO of X company and you're spending all the things that CEOs end up doing, which in most part are far away from the creative process. Yeah. I mean, it's, crea it's creative to build a business. And I think that is a thing in and itself. Mm -hmm. But the creative part of what does the business do, I sometimes talk about this as product or progress, uh, yeah. product or platform or product or uh, or the platform that you're building is a company as opposed to the product. So you usually you quickly get abstracted away from the creative part of building the thing. Yeah. And that is true. I mean, and, and the larger the business, the further you're often away from them because you're spending time doing lots and lots of other things. Yeah. I think many great entrepreneurs have the creative spark at the beginning and they do get energy from the building process and being close to the product. Mm -hmm. And they feel oftentimes like, ooh, you know, now I have this bigger company or big company and I don't get to build as much as I like. And so that's that's one thing to consider is the it's likely as the company gets larger that you get further away from the product part of the business. Mm. Okay. So that is let's that's the small business entrepreneur, I would say probably most of the listeners, but there still are listeners and watchers on the show, if you're watching the video, who work inside of other companies, let's call them sort of intrapreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are folks who are listening who have raised money and are building companies that were being the CEO or the managing director or whatever the title that they have desired to own. And they're using other people's capital to do it. So let's talk about specifically advantages and disadvantages. And we've talked about the advantage, you get more capital, you can go quickly, but we haven't really talked about some of the, the disadvantages of that. So let's focus specifically on that other end of the spectrum. Well, let's set, let's set, let's take two branches. One is an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur. Okay. Okay. So the entrepreneur works at a big company and I, I did this when I was at Microsoft. So after my second company failed, ran out of money, I'd raised friends and family money basically for that. Uh, company ran out of money, had to get a job, had a one-year-old daughter. And I thought that I wanted to go and work for maybe a 200-person company, maybe an experienced CEO to figure out, like, I don't know, maybe I didn't know what I was doing. Ultimately, long story short, ended up at Microsoft. Inside of Microsoft, I was working on a big business, Exchange, which is many people might still use for their email or Office 365. <clears throat> and I was tasked with kind of creating other businesses alongside exchange. So I would call that an entrepreneur type of thing. And part sure. of the reason I had that job is I'd been an entrepreneur previous and mm -hmm. I at least knew what it felt like. That's a very safe way to be an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. right? Still going to success, failure, likely to still get your paycheck. Yeah. Right. And you are likely to have a lot of things to support you that you, when you become a I'll call it entrepreneur, meaning mm -hmm. you're outside in the real world that you start to come to appreciate. You're like, oh, wait, I have this brand called Microsoft. I had someone who did HR and payroll and finance <laughs> and facilities and all of those things that when you're an entrepreneur, you have responsibility for. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneur, someone else is taking care of a lot of that stuff. And depending on where you're doing that, oftentimes the brand of the company you're working for gets you access to customers, yeah. gets you access to lots hey, of- Hey, this is TA Colin from Microsoft. Yeah, I run Exchange yes. and I'm wondering if, hey, Amazon, if we can do a partnership. Yes. If you're like, hey, it's Chase, 
Uh, hey, Amazon, I'm wondering if we can do a partnership. Probably yeah. not going to get the phone call That's back. Right. Yeah. Absolutely not. And so that is, and it's easy to underappreciate how valuable something like that is. Um, and presumably it's valuable in the context that you're working. You yeah. know, the, if you're working for a Eli Lilly or you're working for Microsoft or Google or whomever, Amazon, uh, the value of that brand goes a long way. So anyway, entrepreneurship thing yeah. is a very viable means to build the skills of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Can I find customers? Can I find a unique product? Can I understand the competitive landscape? Can I package it and price it? All those things are good to practice mm -hmm. inside of an entrepreneurship type of context. It is significantly different than the entrepreneurship path where it's all on your shoulders and if the founder and you're the CEO of that, it's all on your shoulders. And both you and I know what that feels like yeah. in both success and failure. Yes. And when it fails, like there is no more paycheck. <laughs> when it fails, you also have responsibility for all the people that you convinced to come join you on said journey. And you have to tell all of those people, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Like we're shutting it down or we're being acquired or it's going away or the vision that we all started off with is not gonna happen the same way that we thought it was gonna happen. And that emotionally is so much harder yeah. than- Telling people inside of Microsoft, hey, we're gonna yeah. we're all gonna report to this other piece of the business yeah. now. Feature right. X we worked on for a little while was killed. So I'll, I'll say there's a broad spectrum of emotional connection. And as you move toward both a entrepreneurship path and let's say a entrepreneurship to orient venture capital path, which is, I think I can create this amazing, gigantic, world-changing thing in the world, and I feel like I'm the person put on the planet to do that. That is bold. Mm -hmm. That is arrogant in certain cases. And when it doesn't work, your own emotional connection to that is, is such, a, such a higher high and such a bigger fall. Yeah as opposed to I'm working on XYZ feature inside Microsoft or large co and feature X gets killed, project X gets killed. Eh, you just move on to project Y. Yeah. Oftentimes your, your brand is not necessarily associated with that thing in the same way as it is for an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And I'll even separate an entrepreneur, like a founder, a founder entrepreneur, like the founder and CEO of a thing was also, it came from usually your heart, like, it's much yeah. from your head, but it's also coming from your heart because you see this future world, this future world state that you're going to try and create. You're going to try and manifest. Mm -hmm. You think about creativity, like you're manifesting this thing that does not exist. Yeah. And you believe for some silly reason that you have the capability to do it. And you need to have that belief that you can do it yeah. or else no one's going to invest in it with you. And no one's going to follow you into said journey, whether it's, well charted or not. So that is a very helpful and articulate um, expression of all of the different realms. The, the There's two things I want to touch on that remain, I feel like. One is this, if that is the, the founder at the other end, the founder CEO, and you're going out to raise a bunch of money, you have to be, used the word arrogant cautiously. I heard that in your voice. But there's a certain confidence that not only is this a great idea, but I'm the person to go and to get it started. Um, and there's also a point in that where you need to like recognize that maybe after you, you pilot the ship for a certain amount of time and then you hand the keys off to someone else who can take it to a different 
you know, level because they have different set of experiences. They've done this before or they've sold their company or they have a great relationship with other venture capitalists and they can go raise another big pile of money, for example. Um, how about the, the process of raising dough there? That is to me the, the upper echelon. You have to understand that there's a whole universe whose goal is to actually find people who are slightly crazy, a little bit arrogant, have a big vision. And that is what people call venture capital, right? And where I recognize that most people who come to me and say, Chase, I want to raise money for my business. They use the term venture capital because that's what they've heard in the parlance of the times. It sounds sexy. You think of it as a win. And I've had Mark Cuban tell me on this show, like that is your first loss. When you go raise a big pile of money, which a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are listening and watching the show right now, like, yeah, that's my ambition. Why does Mark Cuban call that the first loss? Well, I think it's the way you phrase it or the way he phrases it. So if an entrepreneur says, my goal is to raise capital, I think that's wrong. Their goal is to make, to achieve the change or create the thing that they want to create. And it's a means, it's an enabler like the capital is required. Sure. Right. I want to go really quickly because there's lots of other people who have the same idea at the same time. And I want to go quickly to create said thing. Yeah. And if I go slowly waiting for customers to pay for me, mm -hmm. I can't hire the right people. I can't go as fast as I want. And so an enabling feature is venture capital. Got it. So the goal is not to raise the capital. The goal is to accelerate success. There you go. And it may require capital and it may not require, it may require venture capital or it might require customer capital, or it may require lots of people working for free or all of the above right. Right. <laughs> in order to achieve said goal more rapidly. Okay. And if you achieve, if you look at it from the customer or the end user's perspective, theoretically, the world wants what you want to create, mm -hmm. right? And everybody must agree on that sort of thing, even if it takes longer than you think. If that's untrue, you'll have a bigger problem. Right? You, you perceive the world wants a thing and then you show up with a thing and they're like, ah, eh, we don't really want that. Companies fails. Yeah. So incorrect assumption for future world state. Obviously, sometimes you show up and the world wanted something kind of like your thing, but they found somebody else's thing that's close enough to your thing a year earlier. Right. Hence the speed nature of venture capital. There's people who perceive a, an opportunity in the world. You're not the only one with that same perception. And venture capital enables you to go quickly to get to that outcome. Got it. Um, so it's not the goal. It's an enabler, right? It's just like saying, my goal is to go hire all these people. Yes, you need to do that. That is not a necessarily goal. the goal. It's That's a goal, not the goal. It's, it's an enabler to do that. Right. <clears throat> if I come back and I think about the roles of a CEO, specifically through the lens of venture capital, number one is, can I set and communicate a clear vision? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? Who wants it? Who should come along with it? It's one. Second point would be hire and manage a great team. If you can understand where you're going and at what rate, who should come with you? So I think we'll get to at some point strengths and weaknesses of any given leader for sure. any given opportunity. Who else needs to come along? So can I attract them? Do they want to work with me? Can I pay them well enough? Can I, can I communicate that vision and their role in said vision together? Um, third is sort of to build the, the product and then build the platform or build the company. So improve on product and improve on process. 
build a bunch of great, great bunch of great people in a room. If you don't have a process by which they can collaborate, they can build together, they can make decisions, etc. You will fail too, <laughs> despite having a great vision and or attracting a lot of great people. You have to build and manage that particular team. And then last, I would say is, I'm going to add two more. One that I normally talk about is you have to go get the resources to allow those people to do their work. So if they're worried about, is my paycheck going to show up? Can I buy beer and pizza? Like you have to get the resources. Now those resources could come from investors. They could also come from customers or they should come from both. And most great CEOs spend a lot of time in the early days being the first salesperson, mm -hmm. finding those first customers. And you're either selling to investors, you're selling to team, or you're selling to customers. Mm -hmm. And then last but not least is you have to be a decider. A lot of times what I see as early stage entrepreneurs is they don't, they can't make decisions and they don't, they, they feel like they're close. They're, if I make a decision, I'm missing out on some options, but they have to be a decider ultimately to help that team make good progress toward whatever vision they laid out in the first place. Because at the end of the day, it actually is about narrowing. <laughs> to say, right? Oftentimes. And right, it feels right. for most entrepreneurs at the early part, you're like, yeah, yeah, but I'm trying to satisfy all those people out there. But you got to satisfy one or two or three or four. And so it's this incredible tension in the mind of a founder or an entrepreneur is I have to hold what is a gigantic vision that might take me five or 10 or 20 years to achieve all the way back to how do I just get one person to use my thing? Yeah. And holding those two things in your mind at the same time and hopefully being able to connect them in a way that other people go, oh, I see, we're going to solve for one customer, then two, then five, then 10, then 50, then 100, then 1,000, then a million. And how are we going to get there, Mr. CEO? Like, how will we do it? Who will do it? And that's part of that blend of number one uh, and number two. Right, like having a vision and being able to communicate that and get the right people on the bus, et cetera. And communication is partly enthusiasm sure. and partly a plan. And depending on who the leader is, some leaders might be much better at the enthusiastic part and other leaders might be much better at the plan part of that. Mm -hmm. I think the best leaders kind of can do both. They can get everyone yeah. inspired, excited, and then, okay, what's the plan? Great. Last question in this sort of sea of the, the first sort of landmass that I wanted us to cover, which we're getting through very, uh, I think, um, in the right, at the right pace in the right way, is in between founder, individual, solopreneur, and raising a bunch of dough to go build a game-changing product that you have a clear vision, you've maybe done this before, and you're going to raise some money and bring the right people and build quickly and whatnot. There are a couple different ways that I would just say are in the pop culture now. I will highlight two of them. One is an accelerator, which is a essentially a program where entrepreneurs can go learn. They get sort of mentored. They're building a company within sort of the framework of a, 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 a plan, basically. There's sort of a step one, step two, step three. If you come into our incubator or our accelerator, we will help you. We'll run your finance and your payroll and whatever. And then there's the one that you currently are the managing director at Pioneer Square Labs here in Seattle, which is a studio model, which is, I'm going to simplify this radically. It's somewhere between sort of like, I'm a, you know, a, a person with an idea and... I'm, I need some help. I want to go do this idea. And at the other end of the spectrum, like I can do this. I've raised a bunch of dough before I'm going to go 
So talk to us about those two things and specifically where you at Pioneer Square Labs do. Who do you care about? Who are your customers? What is it, the studio model? Yeah, so I would separate the concept of an accelerator versus a studio. Mm -hmm. um, and some people would interchange the word studio with incubator. Sure. So first there's incubators and accelerators, just to make them sure. simple. Incubators tend to be like Pioneer Square Labs is, um, and studio is sort of a more modern term for an incubator, as it were. Okay. Studios you should think of as a co-founder in the company and are going to do a lot of work to help you create that company. Accelerators are usually, as you said, finite programs. The best known ones are Y Combinator, Techstars, or others. They tend to be three-month-long programs. They tend to be educational in nature, and they are primarily advice-oriented. There's mm -hmm. lots of people like me who will go up to Techstars and give you lots of advice on how you should build a business. Hey, you should go find some customers. <laughs> That's very different than the action of finding customers. So yeah. the, one way to think about it for the audience will be, if you're looking for primarily advice, mm -hmm. then you should absolutely consider an accelerator. You'll go there, be very focused three months, you'll meet a ton of different people, you'll get lots of very good advice, sometimes conflicting, but that's useful too. A lot of advice for a finite period of time, but all the action falls on you. Yeah. If you are thinking that you can really benefit from a lot of people with expertise in the action category, not just, hey, you should go find customers, we're gonna help find customers. Not you should build a product, we're gonna help you build a product. Not you should do a landing page and do some demand gen testing and all that sort of stuff, like we're gonna do that. So action oriented versus advice oriented. Got it. You also, of course, get the advice in sure. the studio. <laughs> right. Plenty of advice too, but it's more this action versus an advice. Different concept is regardless of whether you think of studio or accelerator, they are trying to create the same types of companies. They are trying to treat, in most cases, technology-oriented companies that can be venture-funded, that can be publicly-traded companies. Big, so big when companies. you think about the entrepreneur brain, you could separate the concept of what kind of company am I going to create and what is the best mechanism or assistance I can get to create said company. If you were able to just say, oh, great, I'm here, I'm a single founder and I can go raise money and I don't need any help, a, I think that's short-sighted, but let's say that's your perspective. Uh, and you can just raise capital without a Techstars or a Y Combinator or without a studio. You could choose to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the more common path. Yeah. I, I need like $50,000 from friends and family to get my supplement business started. I'm going to... But that's a business that does not have a venture profile. Okay. Right. So this this sort of founder idea investor outcome, mm -hmm. outcome fit, venture capital outcome fits feel like these are the next publicly traded companies. Got these it. are hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And there will be plenty of those that fail. But when they start, everybody believes that this can be a business that is going to be that big. It's hard to think unless you're trying to build the next version of GNC. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to build open a supplement store at the mall, that's fine. That's going to be a tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year business. If you're trying to reimagine GNC, maybe, right? Maybe that is a big enough idea to be venture funded. Global supplement provider. We ship all of your custom supplements yep. all over the world. You're trying to build lean muscle. We've got these 10 things to recommend to you and we will ship them to your doorstep. Correct. That's and you could even get into saying, oh, we genetically test you. Sure. We can uh, align toward your outcomes. 
and you and I both thought a lot yeah. about this category yeah. of personalized health. Yeah. Now, there are certain entrepreneurs that believe that to be true, of which I'm going to optimize your performance or your longevity. Mm -hmm. And in order to do so, you need some form of supplementation. And today, most people walk into a GNC or otherwise like, I have no idea what I should buy, how right. much I should take, sure. how these things will work together. Sure. That could be solved with software. Okay. There probably is an entrepreneur out there who is attempting to build that business. Got it. If they are, call me. I want to invest in that business. <laughs> but that is very different than saying, I want to build a supplement or a supplement retail store Got or it. something else. And in those cases, you may say, oh, I can go get a loan for that because I can show what my cash flow is going to be. Or I can ask my uncle for $50,000 to open that store. But a VC is not going to be interested in that because the outcome profile is not aligned toward their outcome profile. Yeah. And so it's really about thinking about that sort of founder and what their vision is. The idea, the How single big. store, the right. single store or the right. global future where every person who takes supplements is using my software to do it. Yeah. Investor who believes in said thing yeah. and the perception of the outcome of that particular plan. Got it. So Pioneer Square Labs is, you, you said it, you get pitched thousands of times a year. What do you look for? Is it the same profile of the thing we're just talking about? Is it like there's the right person with the right idea? This is an area that we're like, do you specifically at PSL, Pioneer Square Labs, where you are the managing director, do you have an investor profile or a, a, a like a vision, a thesis, an investor thesis? Like if someone's listening right now or watching and they're like, oh, kind of this sort of model sounds kind of interesting. This incubator, accelerator kind of universe sounds interesting. Describe specifically PSL for us. Yep. So let me back one step up. So sure. PSL has three parts of our business. Okay. So one is the studio, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about. The second is we are a venture capital investor. So we have a different pool of capital. We invest out of that pool of capital into companies we create. So we are the first venture investor in the companies we create in the studio. We also invest in early stage companies in the Pacific Northwest. Got so it. we are geographically bound. We focus on technology companies. We write 500K to $2 million checks. So we're usually the first professional money into a lot of these early stage technology companies. And a third part of our business is we actually have a, a corporate innovation part of our business. So in many ways, we're assisting the entrepreneurship yeah. component. Yeah. So a person who's building an internal thing in a company, they should totally do that. There are certain ideas that live inside companies that should be spun out as their own standalone company. Yeah. Within we Microsoft, yeah, there's uh, too many competing ideas or it's difficult yeah. to grow or get the resource. So we want to have partner with Microsoft, go external to the thing, build a thing. And then if it's working for Microsoft, great, then maybe it's its own standalone business. We'll sell it yeah. in the world and, or go to IPO or whatever. Okay. Well, I'll give you an example. So one of the things I worked on, and we'll come back to the PSL sure. part, is when I was there is we had a hypothesis that this is the early 2000s. When you were there being Microsoft? Microsoft. Okay. Early 2000s, we had a hypothesis that spam was a gigantic problem. And it still is, yes. but it's a lot, it's still a gigantic problem, but it's almost largely solved for many consumers, partially for the work we did. This is like 2002. We said, listen, we have Outlook and Exchange, which were the corporate email. We have Hotmail for the older people in the audience will remember that, but effectively Gmail. Uh, and we had a consumer mail product. And we had a lot of research that was coming out of Microsoft Research that thought we could start to identify spam or not spam using software. For all the AI people out there, this is like early AI. Yep. 20, more than 20 years ago. And we said, or I said, because I led this project, 
listen, we can do all this stuff to make it work for Microsoft. That'll be fun. But what if we partnered with Yahoo and Gmail and we all started to share what we could see from each other from spam? Everybody would sort of win in that way, right? Because nobody really wanted spam to show up in their consumers inbox and sure. certainly not their business. That would have been a very good company to start external to Microsoft. Yeah. Microsoft could have been an investor. They could have been the first customer. But that would have been a very good start outside Microsoft. Yep. Standalone business. And that would be the kind of thing we would do in a corporate sure. uh, a relationship with PSL. In PSL, as the three pieces of the business, that would be an example of the corporate one where you do that today. You didn't. There wasn't such a thing way back in the day. And yes. PSL is solving for that with for all the entrepreneurs. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. So, so, so that's the corporate entrepreneurship. Right. Then there's the venture capital. Right. And we can talk about what we got pitched over there. Um, and then the studio part. I want to focus on the studio part because to me, this is the gap that people don't understand between I'm bootstrapping this thing and I know exactly how to build companies and raise money and I've got this big vision and I'm going to go out there and do it. This is, it's me and my friend. Yep. I've got a great idea. I feel like it could be a big business. We don't understand a lot of the, how do we apply for patents and how do we get you know finance started? And well, I don't even know what it means to like hire an engineer, but I know we need engineers. Yeah. Yeah. So let's paint that picture. That's what PSL, this, the studio. original, yeah, the studio model. Yes, correct. So. so the profile of the person is going to be quite similar, whether you're a venture side or a studio side. Mm. You still have to be that founder that has that big vision, that has some skills or presumably background that has illustrated you know how to get shit done and yeah. can achieve right. and right. can win and things yeah. like that. Um, but... What we think about at the studio is really, and I'll share this with the audience if they want to, is it's literally a template. So if you walk in and you say like, hey, TA, I want to do a new company. I think it's a technology-based company. I think it'd be venture scale kind of idea, and I'd love to work with PSL. Almost always, unless you are a repeat successful founder, I will send you a homework. <laughs> and here are the questions that live in the homework. It's a Google Doc. Send it as a homework. Again, I'm happy to share it which is the first question is why this? You're a super talented person. You could work on a hundred different things. You could work at Microsoft or Google or whatever. You could work on, I'm sure you have lots of your, why did you choose this one? This first, why this? The second is why me? And this gets a little bit of a founder idea fit. Mm -hmm. Like why are you the best person to do best camera, creative live or fill in the blank supplement company thing? <laughs> the third is based on the why you, what we call first five. So if you were doing, let's use the supplement company thing. Sure. If you were doing the supplement company thing, who would be the first five hires you would make for that idea as you currently conceive it? Mm -hmm. And then I ask a why now? And the why now is something, is there something that's changed in the world that has enabled this type of business to work much better now than it might have one year, two years, 10 years, 20 years in the past? So in this case, we could take the genetics, do genetic testing. Wow, that's getting better. Blood testing, getting a lot better. Lots of different tests you could run. You could throw all this into an AI model and then make a better recommendation for sure. supplements. Yeah. That would be a why now example on that particular Got thing. It. So it's sort of like, why this? Why, why you? First five, why now? So if you are a founder or you are wanting to build a company right now, those four questions are pure gold. If you cannot answer those, when you're sitting here listening to the show or watching it, you need to go to the whiteboard and spend a little time, a little introspection and have really, really, really good crisp answers. Now, if you do want to go and 
and work with TA and Pioneer Square Labs and pitch them, know that that's going to be your first assignment is you're going to get some homework. But even if that's not the case, like you should know these things. These are fundamentals that I think will help you separate yourself, your product, your idea, and your ability to execute on all those things from other people who could not. I mean, you and I have both been in that seat. Like, And while we may not have answered those questions explicitly, mm-hmm. I think that we answered them in as you were raising money for creative live or I've mm-hmm. raised money before you, you sort of are like, why are, why you, and you imagined who would be the other people you need around you based on your own unique strengths and, and weaknesses yep. and what the business is going to need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, you know, the fact that you and John have done so many things together, like he's your, you know, you're the yin and yang mm-hmm. and, and you're very good at certain things and he's very good at certain things. And yet then you surround with either investors or advisors or team members. So that ability for a CEO to think about that point too I made previously about hire and manage a great team, at least you got to then think like, who the heck would I hire? Yeah. And where would I find them? And then oftentimes the recruiting process of trying to get those first five really informs yourself and it also informs your idea a lot. Sure. Okay. This is a, we've sort of charted the territory on you know big point number one that I wanted us to make sure to cover off of. But we're sort of inching into point two, which is the you get pitched thousands of times. So you see a lot of people who want to build companies make a lot of mistakes. You have watched me very firsthand as you know one of my closest mentors. You've watched me make a lot of mistakes. What are the most common mistakes that you see founders, people who want to build a business make? We are formation stage people. Like I'm seeing most of what we invest in and what we do at the studio, whether it's a studio or the fund, we are at formation stage. Like the earliest parts of business is barely anything as opposed to later stage investors, which will look for different things. There'll be some of the things I've pointed out for, is this the person that can take it to this far? And do they have a good founder idea fit and can build a big team, et cetera. But at the formation stage, the most common mistakes that I see people make not enough narrowed focused on customers. They're like, I'm selling to photographers. Okay. Like professional or amateur professional people who make this much money or that much money. People have lots of gear, not much gear. So they don't put enough criteria to focus enough on the ICP or ideal customer profile. They're far too wide on the ICP and maybe like ideal customer profile. <laughs> Meaning ideal is when you find somebody who has all those attributes, they say, here's my credit card now. I don't, much, I don't care how much it costs. You're solving a problem for me. Like a, not just a, eh, maybe, I guess. No, no. I, yes. Now. You are the, is you're it? my solution. Thank you so much for ideal making this product. Ideal customer yeah. profile. Not yeah. customer profile. Ideal customer profile. So they're far too wide. Second is they don't have specific examples. So they're like, yeah, I'm focused on professional photographers in the Northwest who do this sort of outdoor photography and have done one or more print publications. These would be like attributes that I would perceive if I were selling to you. Mm-hmm. And then you say like, like who? Like, like Chase Jarvis. Well, have you talked to Chase Jarvis? Well, not yet, but I'm going to, or I'm going to try to. So they have, they, they have the ICP, but they haven't done enough, what we would call voice of customer, VOC. Mm-hmm. getting to EAC, which is early adopter. Man, customers. I am like, I'm way out of it on the lingo. I don't know if it's because I have ICP, <laughs> idle customer I, profile, okay. VOC, I, I voice of customer, EAC, think of it like a funnel. 
the better the entrepreneur, the better they can think about this as a funnel. So they're thinking, my ideal customer profile looks like blah. I went and found these many people who have these attributes. I did the customer discovery, customer interviews. I, I talked, talked to them. them. I asked them questions. And I got you the EAC, people who want to pay me money. What is EAC? Early adopter customer. Got it. ICP, VOC, EAC. Okay. That, so point one is they're not narrow enough on the ICP. Therefore, they don't do enough VOC. Mm. And none of the VOC become EAC. Got because it. they never targeted enough on what problem they actually want to solve. Second point. They never asked for money. So they're like, oh, I talked to Chase Jarvis and he said he was really interested in my thing. Did you ask Chase for money? Did Yeah. Like, hey, if I build this, right. will you pay will me? Will you pay me? Yeah. And how much specifically? Will you pay me $10, $100, $1,000, $10,000? So they first don't want to ask for money because most people don't want to pay for anything. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, they don't ask for the specific amount of money, therefore backing into the value they might deliver. Got it. So point one is too, too wide or not enough ICP. Point two is not specific VOC that leads to EAC and or the pricing and packaging of whatever thing they're trying to build. And the pricing and packaging is a really valuable way to start to also think about the products. Like, well, if I'm charging you $10 a month for a thing versus $10,000 a month for a thing, I might mm -hmm. build a very different thing. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly very different sets of people who can pay 10 versus 10,000 for the exact same theoretical value proposition. Point, a couple of points. Um, I could go on, but those are those are the most common yeah. uh, kind of points, which generally would be thought of as customer discovery, mm -hmm. which is like, does anybody actually care about this thing I'm trying to build? Yeah. And customer development, which is, can I find the people who say they care about the thing I'm building and turn them into early adopter customers? Got and it. what is the size and shape of that whole dialogue? Yeah. And the best entrepreneurs are, as soon as they have the idea... They go like do all that. They're, they're just straight into, I just want to go talk to customers. Yeah. And how do I find them? How do I engage them? How Whatever I'm selling is yeah. exciting them to want to spend time giving me feedback on my thing. Mm. So to me, that is very, very useful because I think right now there are a lot of people who are listening or watching or saying, oh, I got two of the three or I missed that one. And I will say as in support of your you know, you got 10 X the experience I do, but having talked to a lot of people coming off stages or people hit me up in my DMS or whatever, like I just see, like, I'm going to go build this thing. And I'm like, I, that you're solving a problem that doesn't really exist. Or the problem is it's a very, very small problem. Or my perception of it is it's a small problem or it's easily fixed by if one big company just tweaks their thing a little bit, then it just basically solves all of the things that you're, you're, you're commenting on. So as I endorse that, what about the profile of the human hmm. to me this is an, a fascinating one that's it's sort of laden with pitfalls because you don't want to generalize too much like these types of people but again when you get pitched thousands of times and you've seen dozens if not hundreds of outcomes is there a correlation is there a type of person is there a um how would you describe the people that are really really suited to build these these companies because right now there are people listening like oh i'm an introvert therefore i'm not gonna be great at raising money and i don't want to you know it's not all eyes on me and yet we see of the last you know decade some of the biggest you know most prolific successful companies are built by you know very introverted people so i want to diffuse that as like that's 
that's not a characteristic that should eliminate you or that you should be too trepidatious of if you want to go build a big business or whatever. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about the people behind these great ideas. Is there sort of a, would you put them on a map? Yeah. So this is why this sort of founder idea fit and even founder idea investor outcome fit or founder idea investor fit. So let's take your introvert use case. There are certain kinds of companies that will be probably better done by introverted type of people, especially if their customer happens to be an introverted kind of person. Yeah. And so the person who understands that type of person is better than maybe the overly extroverted person. Why isn't anybody taking my call? Oh, they don't want to take a call. They want to get email. They want to have a a message in other way. So, so one aspect is the founder idea fit in this aspect is like, well, depends a little bit on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So there isn't necessarily an archetype per se. Mm -hmm. That said, going back to the points of what does a CEO need to do? So if someone's saying like, I'm going to be the CEO of said company, you are looking for somebody who can rally the troops, can excite a market, can get an investor excited, can recruit the person they have no business recruiting. So part of that either has to be incredibly strong intellect, Mm -hmm. like, whoa, like that's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Incredibly strong experience, whoa, you built that and you built that and you built that independent of their personality, Mm -hmm. right? So that's intellect or experience are sometimes more or less attractive for certain kinds of businesses. But the person oftentimes the narrative. So if I were talking to a new investor Mm -hmm. about this person, I would be like, this is a person who built blah, 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 blah. Now that may imply intellect. Mm -hmm. Um, It certainly implies their ability to do things, to be successful in things. And so I think a pattern of success is important. Got it. And you could have had success in other areas. Yeah. But if it's in other areas, you have to be able to translate settings. Because I went to, you know, because I won the America's Cup doesn't mean I'm going to be a successful entrepreneur. However, if I can say, I know what achievement looks like. I know what being best in the world feels like. And now I want to be best in the world at this other thing. Like my partner, Greg. 25 year venture capitalist, he often asks that question of the entrepreneur and of the company. What are you going to be best in the world at? Because we're trying to build a best in the world company. Yeah. That doesn't mean not necessarily like the best Mexican restaurant in Seattle. Like even that's great, but that's not a world changing company. So if you're trying to build a world changing company, you should be able to answer that question of what do I want to be best in the world at? And then what do we want to be best in the world at? Next points are more a little bit more personal. So I would say the person who is very clear about what they're very good at and very clear about what they're not good at and don't want to learn necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, they'll lean even heavier on their compatriot. There are other people they're going to hire. Like if this is really important in this particular kind of business, then I am going to over index on hiring a person with those particular kinds of skills because I'm yeah. not that good at it. And it's really important for this business. Yeah. Certain things are more or less important to pet different kinds of businesses. So I'll say humility, self-understanding is an important attribute, but it can't come without the, yeah, but I'm very good at these two or three or four things. Got and it. I'm going to do these two or three, four things. And these are the other people. That's why the first five question is so important. Yeah. It's kind of the why me for this idea mm-hmm. and first five. Mm. Those mistakes about it. They tend to be, I think you even may have said this, that they're all mostly customer specific, right? They're like, who is my ideal customer? You know, what problem am I solving for them? How much can I make from them? What about um, 
do you see other, if your studio model focuses on helping people get businesses off the ground, is there a, am I mistaken in identifying that these early things block a lot of people? Like, am I going to be a C Corp or, you know, or how? That's, that's, that's a minute detail, which is irrelevant to all of this sort of stuff. Great. Great. That needs to be able to be solved with a snap. We saw that. Sure. Part, but okay. Not, it's actually in the grand scheme of things, like just basically irrelevant. Like, don't worry about it. Like, well, which accounting system am I going to use? Don't worry about it. How are we going to get benefits? Don't that I mean a, a studio will do that. And B, if you're doing a startup, there are so many easy roads to follow and just don't reinvent that stuff. Mm. Uh, one of my partners, Ben, uh, who runs a podcast called Acquired, which I highly recommend for any entrepreneurs out I pay, there. I pay the monthly five or 10 bucks, I think. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Listen to all of them. But Ben and David, his partner, I think have borrowed a phrase from somebody else's like, focus on the thing that makes your beer taste better. <laughs> right? So for every one of our companies, there are unique things that make our own unique beer taste better. The things that don't make your beer taste better, just take the middle of the fairway, just do the same boring thing that everybody else does, do not be creative there. Be creative on the thing that makes your beer taste better. To me, this is a wicked insight. And we're almost sort of stumbling on it, but it's a wicked insight that I I observe so many people get wrapped around the axle on these problems that don't actually move their business, their product, whatever forward. Like, oh man, I'm gonna in six months, I'm gonna wanna change insurance companies. And yeah, yeah and and I mean you're laughing, but like I see, and right now there are people going up. Oh, that me, <laughs> you know, they're as they're walking on the path right now or sitting on the park bench listening to this podcast, they're going, shit. Mm -hmm. So then what I understood is your prescription is don't solve that problem until you actually have that problem. And then when you go to solve that problem, that is not making your beer taste better vis-a-vis -vis what accounting software should you use. This is a solved problem for businesses of this size. You can Google on the internet what's the most the highest rated thing to your HR software or your accounting software or whatever. Is that what you're advocating? Yeah. And this is where a studio or an accelerator or a venture capital investor mm. will answer that question for you in two seconds. Got it. Because they have lots of pattern recognition and lots of experience. You're like, oh no, just use this. And here's the person who can help you do that and go back to focus on what makes your beer taste better. Got it. And so that's where you're broadening experience around the founder. And again, it could come from advisors. It could come from a studio slash accelerator. It could come from investor or all of the above. Mm -hmm. I think the best founders are quite good at getting a lot of people around the table, mm -hmm. giving them each one kind of small pieces of work to do that, that, that uh, accrue value to the business. And these types of questions are easily answered by one or more people around the table yep. and go back to what makes your beer taste better. And there's a spectrum of those. So if you go far on one side, it's product, right? Product, customers, like that's very much about what the beer is and how to make it taste better. And when he says product, people out there, this is like if you, whatever you're selling, if you're Correct. selling, yeah, if you're selling your services as a photographer or if you are building a platform who sells educational courses, like that's product when he says product. Correct. If I move to the middle, I'll say process. So how do we build things? How do we ship things? How do we, if you think using the photography, like there's probably a lot of people who are like incredibly good at the whole, I took a thousand photos and now I got it down to the top five. That's a process thing. Now it results in the product, mm -hmm. but it's not the product. Right. And 
well, how do I organize all the other contractors I need and how do I pay them and things like that? That would be a process innovation. Mm -hmm. And then you get to this stuff that is just platformy stuff that you have to do. Like, yes, you need a payroll system. Okay. Like do not spend time over there. Some entrepreneurs and some companies can get very good at the process part and the process part can therefore bleed into the product. And there's a spectrum across all of that. But I think, you know, depending on the entrepreneur, depending on the company, you absolutely need to be very focused on the product part, product customers. Why are they buying? How are they buying? Why are they buying my thing versus somebody else's thing? And then somewhat on the process part, which could be like, we just are better at recruiting. Okay. Like by being better at recruiting, it's not a product, Mm -hmm. but it will result in a better product by being better at recruiting in this particular case. That does make your beer taste better. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So I'm going to confound or, or, or blend rather is a better word the the combine the, a couple of these big geographic regions that I said, I want to cover specifically one of the things that you have coached me to do in the past, both when I, as the founder CEO, I'm communicating with my board or in communicating with my executive team or to the, to the solopreneur, small business owner who's listening to this, like to the people who work at your company, communicating things that you are not going to do Mm. is almost as important or perhaps even more important than the things that you are going to do. And it was always curious to me, like, well, the list of things I'm not going to do, I'm not going to, you know, get my haircut on Tuesdays, but that's, you know, that, that can be esoteric, but why should you know in your heart and, or be able to communicate to your team members things that you're not going to do? I found it non-obvious and very valuable. As soon as I would stand up in front of all hands, you've got 250 people at the company saying, cool, we're going to go, we're going to solve this problem. We want people to, you know, consume our learning, our, our creative classes, and we're going to be the best in the world at this thing. But we're not actually going to focus on having tests at the end of all of these lessons because we don't think that tests are actually a really good indicator on whether or not you know the material. And even just communicating that as a specific real example was like, oh, everyone in the, in the audience or in this case, all the people who were, at the, the, were in the company could say, oh, okay, cool. I, that helps me refine the picture of what we're doing here. Why is telling people what you're not going to do almost as valuable as telling people what you are going to do? Well, I'm very happy that the concept of not doing things is sort of stuck with you. And I'm very sad that my acronym for it has not, but I'm going to do it now. Okay. So my acronym for this is ITINDI. I-T- this I- is the one I was trying to remember. Earlier. I know. See, I was just saying, like, I think you got the concept, but I don't have the acronym. So okay. I'm a little bummed about that. But now I-T-N-D. this is it. This okay. is the point in time. You'll never forget again. ITINDI. ITINDI. It's because it's a terrible acronym. I know. You know me, like we joke about naming things and like, but he says, I, got a right- gra- I got a great name for my new company. It's called, and then he says some <laughs> terrible thing. And I'm like, you need to employ me as a full-time naming consultant for your businesses that come out of PSL. Anyway, ITINDI. Okay. ITINDI. And it is, it's not a name. It's an acronym. That's the important part. Okay. So ITINDI is important things I'm not doing yet. I-T-I-N-D-Y. And both the I and the Y are the most important parts. So Important things I'm not doing yet, because if you're doing your business, you're going to hire lots of great people and they're going to have a million ideas. You're going to get investors who have lots of ideas. Your customers will have lots of ideas. And in many ways, they are important ideas. 
Well, some of them are. That's the I important. That's the important. Hey, Chase, that's an important idea. Doing the lessons, a test at the end. That's an important idea. That's an important idea. But it's a thing we're not doing yet. And the yet is the most important part of this whole concept. And the yet can be dropped into a time frame. Between now and the end of 2023, we're not adding tests. It could be dropped into, to use the venture capital schema, a next round of funding. Between now and the time we raise another round of funding, we're not doing tests at the end. Or it could be aligned to a specific milestone um, or metric. So until we've shipped 10,000 courses, we're not doing tests. Or until we hire a head of test development, we're not doing tests. Got it. So you can align and bucket all this important stuff that we're not doing yet into these groups of orientation. Time, milestone, funding, sure. or metric. Now, when you do that, everybody who has the idea thinks like, oh, cool. Chase heard me with the idea for the test. He said that's an important concept that we're not doing between now and the end of the 2024. Year or, sure. Between now and the time we're going to raise more money. Sure. Between now and the time we hit our 10,000th course. But as you get closer to the 10,000th course or you raise more money, you need to go back to the attendee list. Yep. And reprioritize it and say, hey, Mary, that was a super good idea about doing the test. We've now hit our 10,000 thing. We've raised some more money and we're now going to open a head for, head for test development. But if you keep the itindi list, which is all the stuff effectively below the line, mm -hmm. and that helps you to focus on what we are doing yeah. by not trivializing or minimizing the other concepts. Yep. But if you're always back and forth between no one knows what we are doing and what we're not doing. Yep. It's a lot of grayer. It's a lot of cognitive, cognitive dissonance. So ITINDI has been very powerful. In fact, a lot of boards I'm on now, like the, something will be said and the CEO just goes, ITINDI next round. ITINDI 2025. ITINDI CFO. Like sure. when we hire a CFO, we can come back to our whole pricing discussion and how we might change that. Off. Great. We have an open headcount for the CFO. ITINDI CFO. And like a bunch of stuff then gets layered into that thing yep. that when the CFO starts, everyone goes, cool, we're going to get back to ask that question about pricing or whatever it is. But it, it is, it's a focusing, almost every person you'll give, every entrepreneur out there, someone will give you advice. You need to focus. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that is true. But focus on what? And one way to focus is by telling people what you're not focused on. Yeah. Yep. And by saying, I've heard you, it's on my list, it's on ITND, and I've started to say, well, when we raise more capital, or we get 10,000 users, or we do something else, we're going to come back to that list and prioritize it, which still may go to 20,000 users, 50,000 users. But ITND is a powerful word, and it's a powerful mechanism that can be used in a lot of different contexts. And, uh, you know, sometimes people just have that as shorthand in their companies now mm. as ITINDI as the sort of means to focus by what we're not doing. Got it. Insanely helpful. I found for listeners and watchers out there like that, that being able to communicate what you're doing is seemingly obvious, right? Because that's how you get people excited about your ideas. That's how you find your customers and all the other things that you talked about. Be good at those things. But to say what you're not doing and specifically not doing yet, I hear you. That's a good idea. We're not doing that yet. It just keeps, to me, it was like it's an alignment exercise. It's, and it's a, I hear you. I know this is valuable in the space, in our product, in our company, but not now because we're focused on something else. It, it's very, very uniting concept. Can I just make a point? On Please this? do. So a, a lot of people I talk to, like especially entrepreneurs, are like, hey, you should write a book about all this stuff. And I say, I tindy. 
that's an important concept. It could get further out there, but yeah. I actually don't like to write very much. Like I think I'm pretty good at thinking about these frameworks and yep. doing whiteboardy sessions and maybe even giving advice. But I actually don't know that I'm that good about writing it down. And when I write a blog post about something, it's freaking painful. It's hard for me to write that down. And so the writing of a book just seemed like, oh, wow, so difficult for me. So much and easier I, and, to go and, on and Chase's you know show. It's hard to do a book, <laughs> it's period. Hard. It's very hard. Um, it's probably really hard to do a book, even if you like the process of writing and yep. putting your ideas down. So for me, I, I, people say write a book. I say itindee if I had a collaborator. If I had somebody who, you know, it could be a business school person at this point who thought that my ideas were reasonably good, who really liked to write, who liked to take the things like chicken scratch on a board and turn them into good diagrams, who could make a coherent chapter by chapter description of many of these concepts. Then I would say, okay, I tend to collaborator. Or I tend to someone offered me a really big book contract. Sure. So those would be both things which might take an important concept of TA, you should write a book off of the attendee list, <laughs> which is I would only do that if I had a really strong collaborator that I was going to enjoy doing that process with. Yeah. And I like doing things together with other people. Yeah. And or there was somebody who was going to really help me to promote the book because writing the book doesn't matter to me. Mm. If I could scale these lessons the more idea. efficiently by yeah. having a book or a YouTube channel or something else, maybe, because my goal is not to write the book. My goal is to bring some of these lessons so that all the people who are going to start companies are going to fail. Fewer of them fail. Truth. Fewer of the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars that are going to be invested in these companies, which will, many will fail, yep. will not be wasted. Good. And so my goal is to make it more efficient and more successful. Any book may be a means to do that, but I'm not going to write a book unless one or more of those conditions are true. Said the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things we also talked about is your lens on creativity. Um, when we, before we started recording, we're like, yeah, a lot of people like they think of creativity as art. And I think of it as why don't you fill in the blank there? Well, creativity certainly can be art, yeah. but I think that's the natural place where you say a creative pursuit is an artistic pursuit um, and even writing is sort of a creative pursuit. But I think of both creating companies is an artistic expression. It is a creative expression. Even thinking about how you do recruiting differently or better, for me at least, and maybe that's because I'm an engineer, like that is a creative expression. And writing it down and drawing the diagram and the flow chart and the whatever is a creative expression, at least for me. And mm -hmm. I think for many entrepreneurs, there's the creativity at the process level and certainly at the product level that many entrepreneurs are, are creating the product. And that is an artistic expression of themselves or their future world state or their perspective on the world. And I, I do think that it is incredibly creative and energizing and even at PSL now, I have two levels of that creativity. So we have the companies we are creating, but I'm also creating a company to create other companies. <laughs> yeah, It's a machine and it's a machine that sometimes I use the analogy of hopefully it's sort of a Swiss watch analogy. Like on the front, it's just hands kind of going around and we look at ideas and we turn them into companies. You flip that thing over and you start taking it apart like a Rolex watch and you're like, there's one system that's connected to another system that's connected to a third system. And there are all these nested systems that all kind of get together to flip over so that you just stay on time and you do and it more efficiently. And for me, I have find so much energy in the creative pursuit of, in this case, building a company to build other companies. 
and the companies themselves are a creative pursuit. And it's fun to do that alongside other entrepreneurs now, as opposed to being the entrepreneur. It's now I'm a co-founder with those entrepreneurs and I'm helping them to realize the vision that they have for this future world state. Beautiful. The last piece of our conversation today, I want to focus on what are the trends and things that you're seeing? You've mentioned AI a couple of times and um, I might augment that with AN ad nauseum, right? <laughs> AI is everywhere and uh, to the point of making us nauseous. But what are the trends that you're seeing in, in there? And I, I want to share this, A, because it helps people understand your level of insight when you get pitched thousands of times per year and B, like what you find interesting and it's for the people out there like oh i'm these are it's interesting to hear that this is a trend that's emerging and i'm thinking about that so it could give them extra people juice or maybe even caution so yeah. what are some trends that you're talking about that you guys internally are talking about at at, at uh, psl at psl both on the studio and the venture side almost everything we're working on is ai in one way or another and I kind of have the scoring mechanism of like AI companies. And so on one end of the spectrum would be no AI, <laughs> like ones or twos. 10 is the on the other end of the spectrum. Ones or twos, no AI. Three to fives are what I would call AI ingredients. So the core product does something else, but there's a beginning of an AI ingredient. Like Outlook is a sure. good example. It's not an AI product, but there's an AI ingredient that's sure. starting to help you write better emails or things sure. like that. You could be an AI sort of like a five to seven is like an AI only company. So all it does is an AI something or other. Eights, nines, and tens are what I would call AI innovations or inventions. Got it. They are people who have actually used it. Sure, it's AI only and the only thing it's going to be, but there's an invention in there. Um, you could look at something like ChatGPT as an AI invention. Sure. It's way up at that end of the spectrum. So all everything we're working on is like has three, five, sevens, a couple sure. of eights or nines, maybe. Sure. Yeah, maybe. Right. Um, but they're all in that category. You know, I've been building companies like I'll say modern companies. The first company I really started was 1995. And it was really triggered by Netscape. Mm -hmm. Like this was the first time that non-technical people could see the Internet. Right. The browser. Mm -hmm. You are like. Oh, they, oh, because I, I, we actually had access to the internet at Purdue mm. in 87, you know, so I, I was sort of feeling like, oh, this is interesting, like email. Wow, that's kind of cool. I'm mm. communicating with people all over the world. So like technical people or technical universities could feel that in the late 80s, early 90s. And then the sort of browser happened and, and normal people could, could see, see it. Yeah. I think that the chat GPT moment is very similar. Mm. It was the first time that normal people, consumers, could feel an AI. Like mm -hmm. they could go to ChatGPT and they could type in, write me a poem or do this recipe sure. or whatever. And they're like, oh my God, this is incredible. So I've built companies through the internet, through the cloud, through mobile, through social, and now at this point in time. And I do think it's as, as important, if not potentially more important than all those other things in the past. Now it layers on top of all sure. of those. So with somebody who has lots of experience, that feeling. Mm. That's also shared by my partners who've mm. been investing in companies for 25 years. Yep. You know, my partner was one of the first investors in Amazon. So they've seen through every one of those waves too. And also they agree that this is maybe it sort of doesn't matter with the superlative, but sure. it's as important, similarly important. It's it's important. 
Huge. And and therefore we are spending a lot of time thinking about it. It's also misunderstood or not that well understood yet. Yeah. All of us are like, even if you have lots of experience, you're still trying to figure out, I don't know, does my scoring mechanism even make sense? Yeah. What is the difference between a true innovation and just a augmentation? Sure. What's going to happen with the big companies and the small companies? Like none of us, like we're, we're all a lot of deer in the headlights at this yeah. point trying to figure that out. But we are all spending a lot of time trying to figure it out. That is very helpful. And therefore, the people who are not working on things like that, like you're just not going to get that much attention because yeah. we're going to try and figure it out until some of us start to figure it out. I don't know whether it takes us six months or six years to figure out what are the right opportunities, what are the right products to be built, what are the right capabilities, how quickly is it changing. That said, it's also changing much more rapidly than previous iterations of technical innovations. Therefore, it's even harder for us yeah. Yeah. because you're like, wait, what was true two months ago is no longer true. And previous iterations were slower. So things like that, what was true a year and a half ago might not be no longer true, but this is literally changing I don't want to say daily, sure. but like it's certainly it feels weekly. like it. Like, yeah, it, it feels like it. And it is mm. changing at multiple different levels. I mean, all the way down to the infrastructure level, the hosted level, the models level, the application level. All of that is true. So the trend of rapid acceleration of change. True. AI, very important. True. Um, and the role of technology in almost every facet of our life continues to increase. So yeah. therefore, yeah. everybody paying more attention to an important trend at an important time that is changing very rapidly. So it is a bit overwhelming being in the space. <laughs> and therefore, if you're not in the space or not getting that much exposure, it's probably even more overwhelming if you're trying to pay attention and try and get into it. It's like paddling into a gigantic wave and you're like, yeah. oh my gosh, like- I barely know how to surf. <laughs> I don't really surf yet, right. but I need, but everybody else is trying to surf the big yeah. wave. Yeah. So it's a really important point in time. And so that trend is, you know, here for a while and maybe forever. Mm -hmm. Pre I would presume forever, but the trend of focus and try and deep understanding from a lot of people who are either entrepreneurs or investors or both to attempt to figure it out, to create a framework that, you know, I come back here a year or two years from now, Still I'll work. have a yeah. much better framework of understanding the difference between you know good versus bad, where to invest, how would it, how would a founder today be different than a founder five years ago? Mm. That point of what I do know is that most of the founders who are working in this category are more technical than not. Sure, sure, um, and they are continuing to skew more and more technically, which makes sense sure. because we're at this early days of technology, right. and so. For the person that's not technical wanting to be involved in it, you have to over-index on customer access. Sure. Like, I just know how to find customers. But I have to find my counterpart who is very, very technical to go build this product. If Yeah, and whether you're building a product or just using the product and being in the space, the point is, the takeaway here is, this is real. Now, I have outstayed your... or. I have outstayed my welcome in your company here today. We're past time. So I want to let you get out of here. I've kept you a little bit longer than I promised. That being said, how do people, uh, you know, where would you steer people? Is it PSL, your personal page? Where would you want to steer people? Despite my, you know, uh, comments about writing, I do have a fair amount of blog posts for a lot of these sort of core concepts. That's all at tamccann.com. And then PSL.com will be all the stuff that we do at PSL. 
Uh, and so those are probably the easiest places to find me. Or I, I post a fair amount on LinkedIn as well. That seems to be a place where can the right audience has the right concepts in this particular category. I just decided I'm going to beg you to come back on the show so we can have story time because we've gone through a lot of very, very important materials today. But I also want to share some like some intimate building stories of where I tripped and fell and where you helped help me pick up the pieces uh, as well as um, some you got some great stories, not just sailing stories either, but uh, very, very, very funny stories. It's been um, a true joy to work with you on all these different companies. Uh, watch the evolution of the show and all the people you've had here it makes me my heart feel warm that I've had some small impact on that. Or you call me massive, a massive uh, it makes me really, really happy to be here. And I hope we're doing another 30 years in the future. Well, don't make me wait 30 years. I'm, I was talking a few weeks here to have you I'm back doing the in the show, show again, but I hope we're still building companies <laughs> okay. 30 years in the future. Until next time, everybody out in the world, thank you so much for being a guest TA and to everyone out there in the world, I bid you. Until next time, you. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <music>